This is a reading from the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 2, verses 22 through 28, found on page 910 of the Pew Bibles. Hear these words from the book that we love. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. We've been in a series on the Apostles' Creed, which we're calling I Believe. Uh, What we said about the Apostles' Creed, the Apostles' Creed actually outlines the gospel for us in a nutshell. So um, it's not everything that the gospel entails, but it gives us a good roadmap through Scripture and picks up the main points so we can know those and helps us fulfill our calling as God's people in the world. And so far, we've looked at a number of things. We talked about how we, why we need things like the Apostles' Creed. And then we walked through like the God we believe in. Two weeks ago, we talked about the importance of Jesus' birth, his virgin birth, and his incarnation. And last week, Pastor Tim shared with us why Jesus had to suffer and die. Now, theologically, Jesus' death uh, his suffering and death was considered his humiliation. Today we're going to talk about his exaltation. Now, those terms may seem, make us feel like there's actually like a clear line distinct, that's making those two distinct, but they kind of go together. In many ways, Jesus' humiliation on the cross is part of his exaltation. But theologically speaking, this is kind of like the term we use. But I'm just going to call it his victory. Jesus' victory. It's a little easier for us to grab onto that. And there's really three parts of Jesus' victory, which the Apostles' Creed puts like this. He, God the Son, Jesus, descended to the dead. On the third day he rose again. He ascended to heaven. So what we're going to look at today are three things that go with Jesus' victory. First, his descent into the dead. Secondly, his resurrection. And thirdly, his ascension. The Apostles' Creed reminds us that Jesus is victorious over death, and that actually frees you and me from death's power over us. And so we, we're going to talk about all three of Christ's, parts of Christ's exaltation, his victory, and all three of them are actually found in Acts chapter 2. Conveniently for us, it's really helpful that Peter preaches that to Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. So I'm going to talk about the beginning of Christ's victory, which is his descension, his descent, excuse me, the guarantee of Christ's victory, which is his resurrection, and the confirmation of Christ's victory, his ascension. So let's just look at the beginning of Christ's victory. Acts chapter 2, what's happening here is we're at the day of Pentecost, and the apostles, what they're doing is they're hiding after Jesus' resurrection and ascension, and the Holy Spirit descends on them, and they start speaking in tongues in all different languages represented in Jerusalem at that time. And everyone, it's kind of funny the way it works, everyone thinks they're drunk because of the way they're acting. And Peter's like, hold up, we're not drunk, it's really early in the morning, they didn't 
have like the, it's five o'clock somewhere mentality. They were like, it's not five o'clock yet. We haven't started drinking. This is actually what has been told in, and prophesied by the prophet Joel that we're in the last days. And on the last days, God was going to pour out his spirit on us. And then he explains that Jesus, who they killed at the hands of the Romans, but it was all part of God's plan This Jesus actually rose from the dead, which was prophesied by King David. And so let's pick up in verse 27 of Acts chapter 2. He says, For David says concerning him, and then he goes in verse 27, For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, And you have made me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, knowing that God had sworn with with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Jesus' victory over death began with his descent to the place of the dead, which the Apostle Creed says he descended to the dead. In older versions of the Apostles' Creed, it says he descended to hell. Now, depending on your church background or whether or not you have one, Jesus' descent might be business as usual. You're like, okay, this is like what I believe, this is what I've been taught. Um, if you come from like maybe a higher church background, you might be familiar with this, or even uh, many Protestant denominations talk about this. And most Christians across the world and across two millennia believe that Jesus, after his death, actually descended to Hades, the place of the dead. So it works out something like this. On Friday, Jesus died. On Saturday, he's in the place of the dead. On Sunday, he resurrected. And for some, though, some of us, this might be news. It's my like, we've never heard of this, and you might be shocked or even skeptical of this. But what I want to show to you is that Scripture actually supports Jesus' descent to the dead. First, Peter here quotes Psalm 16. In Psalm 16, what David does, he claims that God will not abandon his soul to Sheol, or Sheol, which is the Hebrew word, and the Greek word is Hades. Nor will his flesh see corruption, which means decay. Like his body's not going to decay. Now, Peter does this. He says, hey, guys, listen up. This couldn't be David. He says, David's still dead. I'll take you to his tomb. We'll go to his gravesite, and I'll show you he's there. We could open it, which we wouldn't really want to do, but we could open it, and we could see that his bones are still there. He decayed. His soul's not there. It's in Hades. So then, who's David talking about? And Peter does the Sunday school answer, Jesus, right? It's the Sunday school answer for kids all the time. It was that old, that old story about like what's, the, you know, what's furry gray and has a bushy tail and jumps around in trees and the little kid raises his hand and says, Jesus. Now, the answer is squirrel, but he says, Jesus. So Peter says, no, Jesus is the one that David's talking about, that Jesus died His body was in the tomb, his soul went to Hades, and then he was resurrected. Now, I'm going to dive into some theology here. 
All right? So buckle your seatbelts. It's gonna, I'm going to take you back to the first century world and what they believed. And we're going to talk about some theology and go through some scripture if that's okay with you. And when I say is that, if that's okay with you, it's really, I'm being rhetorical. It's in my notes. We're going to talk about it. But we're going to just, I want you to understand how the first century Jews saw the world and saw the universe and the afterlife. So there's a couple charts I'm going to show you here. This all comes from Michael Emerson's book, He Descended to the Dead. And so the first one is just how the Hebrews saw the universe. All right, so we should have that picture there. Uh, do we have it? There we go. All right. So if you can't see this, it's pretty basic. This is how they saw the universe. Heaven's the realm of God. It's above. You have the waters above the firmament, right? You may have heard that language in Scripture. You have the earth. Sheol is underneath the earth. You have the pillars of the earth. You have the abyss of the waters. This is how they saw the world. This is how they saw the universe. Now, it's not as scientific as we might put it. But this is the way they saw it. And it, there's some good, like, theology to remember, like, when the Bible talks about going up to heaven or down to Sheol or down to Hades, right, this is kind of more of, it's more metaphorical, right? It's not that, like, oh, if you just go high enough in the sky, you're going to end up in heaven. Or if you go down far enough into the ground, you're going to end up in Sheol. It's kind of like, hey, it's a good thing to go up. It's a bad thing to go down kind of idea. So heaven's above the earth, that's where God lives. Sheol, Hades, is below the earth. In a first century Jewish understanding of the afterlife, it goes like this. When you die, your body remains on earth. Everyone's soul goes to Sheol, goes to Hades. And many of you are probably like, Hades, isn't that the sarcastic blue guy from Disney's Hercules? In some sense, yes, but that's Greek mythology and that's not scripture. Hades in the Bible is a place where all the dead go. And so you might say, wait, so everyone goes to hell? Hold on a moment. There's this other chart that I need to show you as well from Michael Emerson's book, which talks about the three compartments of Hades. So, first, you'll see at the bottom, Tartarus, which is the prison for all the fallen angels. This is how they saw it, Okay. So when he talks about evil spirits, demons, fallen angels, that's where they live. The place of the unrighteous dead, that's sometimes, so sometimes the word Hades or Sheol talks about the whole place of the dead, and sometimes it's a particular compartment. So other times we might call it, you might hear Jesus referred to in the New Testament as Gehenna, which is what we classically call hell. And that's where the unrighteous dead go. And then you have paradise, or Abraham's bosom, or his side. So if you think about Jesus' parable, the rich man and Lazarus, all where the righteous go is they go to Abraham's side. They go to paradise. So think about this. Jesus kind of points to this when he talks to the thief on the cross. He's next to two thieves. One rebuke, one like mocks Jesus and makes fun of him, and the other one repents and says, like, look, like he doesn't deserve to be here. We do. And he says, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. And what does Jesus say to him? He says in Luke 23, 43, says, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The place of the righteous dead. Now we have to get out of our like Western post, probably like post 17th century understanding of heaven and hell. Right, the angels and God and heaven. And like, you know, you have people on the street might say, good people go to heaven, the bad people go to hell. It's not really how the Bible talks about it. And we have to be honest with that. 
that maybe we're reading that back into the Bible when the Bible's saying, hey, actually, there's something a little bit more like this. And so Jesus is saying to the thief, he's saying, look, when I die, I'm going to go to paradise, and guess what? You're going to be there with me. Where does the man deserve to go? The place of the unrighteous dead. But Jesus said, you don't deserve... What you deserve, you're not going to get. You're going to get what I deserve, and you're going to come with me to paradise. That's beautiful. That's the gospel. Paul talks about paradise in 2 Corinthians 12, 2 through 3. He says he calls paradise the third heaven. Why would he say third heaven? Three compartments. Revelation 2, 7 also refers to heaven as the paradise of God. So here's what the New Testament is driving at, okay? You don't have to buy all this, whatever. Here's what I'm really driving at. The New Testament is driving at is that the afterlife will be like torture for those who aren't in Christ's presence after death because they didn't believe in him while they were alive. But the afterlife is paradise for those who believe in him. Jesus' presence brings paradise. It makes everything paradise if you believe in him. But Jesus' presence, even when he comes back to earth, it will, for some of us, it will be comfort, it will be excitement, it will be time to praise, and for other people, it will be time of mourning and judgment. Jesus says, wherever I am, if you believe in me, is paradise. So let me give you a quick, few quick examples from Scripture that support Jesus' descent to the dead. All right? Again, rhetorical. We're going to do it anyway. Romans 10, 6 through 7. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend to heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. Now the word, when we say the dead there, it's for you Greek nerds, it's, a part, it's participally plural. All right, that means nothing to most of you. It's ek ven roan. Okay, it means nothing for many of you. Ek vekron, excuse me. What it's saying is the dead there is plural. So we don't say the deads. We say Christ came up from the dead ones. The dead is plural. It's like fish. We don't say fishes. We say fish. It's more than one. But we don't pick that up in the English. Ephesians 2, 4, 9. In saying he ascended, what does it mean that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? It's actually better translated, like the King James does a better job of this, is the lower regions of the earth. What Paul's doing here in Ephesians, he's combining, I did all this work for you. If you want to go read Michael Emerson's book, you can read that too, but I did all this work for you. This is about like three hours of theology down in about five minutes, okay? So what he does here is he combines Psalm 63.9 and Psalm 139.15 from the Greek version of the Old Testament, which we call the Septuagint. You can impress your friends with that later, but it's the, it's, the old, it's the Greek version of the Old Testament, and that's what the New Testament writers read. So he combines those psalms with a common expression from the Greco-Roman world, because he's talking to the Ephesians, to refer to the descent of the, to the underworld. He's combining all that. The Ephesians will pick that up. Then in Matthew 12, 40, Jesus says this, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. 
What Jesus is doing here, which we don't pick up in the English necessarily, is Jesus' wording is mirroring Jonah's words in Jonah 1 and 2. In Jonah 2 particularly, Jonah speaks of his soul figuratively descending into Sheol, into Hades in the, in the Septuagint, the Greek word Hades. He's saying, I'm in the belly of the fish. It's like me going down to Hades, the place of the dead. So what Jesus is saying, where Jonah did that figuratively, I'm going to do it literally. And so all this to say, Jesus' descent is biblically and historically supported. The church fathers believed in it. Even reformers like Calvin and Luther believed in it. And they preached it. And you also have the challenge, like, ecumenically speaking, like, meaning that, like, most of the church across the world believes in it. And so the question is, like, if we don't see this as a valuable part of our understanding of what Jesus did, maybe we're the ones who are reading it wrong. So, but then, like, all this is great. Here's, thank you, Evan, for the th- three hours of theology in five minutes. Appreciate that. How's this part of Christ's victory? Because it's like, Jesus went to Hades, so what? Here's where I want to drive us to. Jesus defeated death and took power from Satan. Where do we see that? We see that in Revelation 1.18. Jesus said, I died, and behold, I am alive forever, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Now, scholars debate what it looked like for Jesus to defeat death but fortunately for you, I was able to dig up a picture of what this may have looked like. All right, so I think Dave's going to put up a picture up there for us. This is probably what it looked like. All right? If you don't know the reference to this, then you've got to watch more Phillies. But that Jesus defeats death, he rounds second base, and he's like, okay. Yeah. Go ahead, talk your smack, death. Go ahead, talk it. Go ahead. I'll just crush homers. In Revelation, what's happening is death is personified as being the ruler of Hades. And Jesus defeats death and takes away its keys. So think back to Genesis 3. Part of God's judgment on the serpent or Satan was that he would eat the dust for the rest of his life. And what it's not saying is, hey, once at a time, snakes used to talk and have legs. That's not what it's saying. And then God took the legs away. What it's saying is, hey, Satan, remember when you wanted to have power over my, the pinnacle of my creation in Adam and Eve? What I'm going to give you power over is the dirt. You want to power over some creation? Fine. Here's the dirt. That's what God's saying. You know, it's just basically nothing. And so Jesus in Revelation 1, pay attention to this. Listen, look at me. What he's doing in Revelation 1, he claims that he died and he's alive and he defeated death in Hades. He took the keys of Hades and he took the little power that Satan had left. Even the dust now Jesus takes away. Because Satan had power over Hades or the place of the dead. Satan had power over the dead. And because of Adam's sin, all who died were locked in there. 
But in his death, his descent, and resurrection for the first time, one man, the second and perfect Adam, Jesus, the Son of God, was able to leave. And when he was able to leave, he broke the power of death and Hades and Satan over all the lives of those who believe in him. So Romans 5 says, where Adam's actions brought condemnation and death, Jesus' actions brought justification and life to all who believe in him. And check this out. Now it's Jesus' divine prerogative or his divine right over the souls of all who die. Jesus has that now. He determines where people go. Not Satan. Satan doesn't lock people in anymore. It's Jesus' job now. He took it from him. So what's all this mean? When you die, your soul's in Jesus' hands. If you believe in him, that's really comforting. If you don't, it's really scary. What it also means is that Jesus experienced death like all humans do. Jesus truly experienced the full weight of the consequences of sin. He had to die. And he went to the place of the dead like we all have to do because of sin. And Jesus knows what it's like to take his last breath for his body to stay in the grave and for his soul to go to the place of the dead. Jesus knows all that. He didn't skip any part of your experience when you die. None of it. And he experienced what we deserved, which is death, and we get to experience what he deserved, which is paradise. And it also means that Satan knows his days are numbered. So while we, while we may deal with Satan's toolkit of sin, suffering, and sabotage now, Jesus has power over Satan, and he knows his days are numbered, which makes him angry. So that's why Peter says he's like a roaring lion. He's angry. He's frustrated. Everything that he had power over is being taken away. So what's he doing? He's acting like a toddler. He's freaking out. But that's not enough. Not enough just to begin victory. You actually have to complete it, and there's a guarantee of his victory. And Peter talks about this in verse 24 and 32. So look at verse 24, and we'll skip to verse 32. It says, God raised Jesus up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. In verse 32, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Jesus' resurrection is the guarantee of his victory over death. Jesus didn't just descend. That's not enough. He rose again. And his resurrection means five things in particular. We're going to have all five on the screen. First, it marks Jesus as the Son of God. That's what Romans 1 says. Secondly, we can be forgiven our sins and be justified by God because of the resurrection. That's not going to happen. We need that. It guarantees that those who die will be resurrected when Jesus returns. 1 John 3, 2 says that when he appears, we will appear with him. And lastly, it makes the resurrection life possible. Sorry, not lastly. It makes the resurrection life possible here and now. It's what Romans tells us. But then what I really want to focus on is it removes the sting of death 
which 1 Corinthians 15, 54 through 55 says, which says this, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Do you hear like almost like Paul's like mocking? He's like, Jesus is rounding second base and he just hit a home run. He's rounding second base and he's looking back at death. Oh, death, where's your victory? Braves, you're going home. We don't care how many games you won during the regular season. You lost now. You're going home. He's saying the same thing. Hey, he's saying, I don't care how many victories you had. Death, I don't care how many victories you have. It's all gone. You're going home. And Jesus is continuing on. So for the Christian, what happens, death becomes this paradoxical victory. Because of Jesus' victory over death, the sting of death has been taken away. In summertime, I used to love as a kid, and my kids do it now, and occasionally I do it too. Like, we catch lightning bugs. If you're not from Philly, you call them fireflies. And I'm not scared of them. Why? Because they don't do anything to me. They don't bite me. They don't sting. But I am afraid of wasps and hornets because they do. But what if they had no stingers? I might catch them like lightning bugs or like in nets like dragonflies when I was a kid. See, once something's lost its sting, your fear of it starts to disappear because it can't hurt you. Christians don't have to fear death because it can't hurt us in the way that we thought it once could. Jesus has taken all the power away from us, uh, from death. Its sting is gone. Listen, the war in Israel is a reminder of death. And my social media was flooded with death this week. Flooded with it. And put aside, like, I don't think we were supposed to be, like, we were never meant to, like, see all that death. It's not good for us. I suggest don't watching all the videos. If it's like, warning, this is graphic, it's probably not for you to watch. But you need to know the reality of it. It's really scary. Jesus doesn't act, tell us, hey, you know what? Act like death doesn't exist. Be dismissive of it. Deny it or ignore it. No, Jesus says, the death is real. I experienced it. It'd be foolish for you not to acknowledge it. So we acknowledge it. It's real. It's destructive. But we don't need to fear it, the Bible says. Instead, we can address death in our world head on. We're empowered by Christ to address death wherever we see it because its sting is gone. It can't hurt you. We don't have to fear death when it comes for us to take our last breath. We can address it in the world, but when it comes for us, it eventually comes for all of us unless Jesus returns. And every day I'm like, please, this would be a great time. Like, I get a new bill in the mail I, like, wasn't prepared for. I'm like, you know what, Jesus, now would be an awesome time. If you're going to come back now, I know it's selfish, but if I didn't have to pay this bill, that'd be great. Like, I got hit with, like, a $2,000 water bill I wasn't expecting, right? That would have been a great time for Jesus to come back. But you don't have to fear death when you take your last breath. Uh, there's this great story, John Preston, he's this Puritan there's a story about when he was dying. He's laying there, and they, the people around him asked him, hey, do you fear death now that it's so close? And the story goes like this. No, whispered Preston. I shall change my place, but I shall not change my company. And J.I. Packer reflects on that. He says, as if to say, I shall leave my friends, but not my friend, for he will never leave me. For those of us who put our faith and trust in Jesus, 
Jesus' victory over death means our victory over death too. That when you die, and we all will die, though we change places, we don't change our company. Though we may leave friends behind, our best friend is waiting for us. Though we leave family behind, our brother is standing there at the front door ready to welcome us home. Today, I'm going to meet my family at my mom's gravesite. We do this every year. It brings me great comfort that when my mom left her family behind, her brother was waiting for her. That when she left her friends behind, her great friend was waiting for her, saying, welcome home. She never changed companies. Instead, when we die, those who believe in Jesus, we rest in his love in paradise with him. And God confirms this to us. He confirms Jesus' victory in his ascension. Picking up in verse 33, he says, Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend in the heavens, but he says himself. He's like, look, again, David's talking about somebody, but he's not talking about himself. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then he says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Jesus' ascension is confirmation of his victory over death. See, the final step of Jesus' victory, his exaltation, is his ascension at the right hand of God. And we'll talk more about that next week. But 40 days after Jesus was resurrected, he ascended into heaven. And that confirms that Jesus is Lord and Christ. And Peter says, look, this was God's plan all along. From before the foundation of the world, God had this sovereign plan. He determined that Jesus would be humiliated so you and I don't have to be. He determined that Jesus would be victorious so you and I could be. And so Philippians 2, 9 through 11 says, Therefore God has exalted, highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, right? Think back to the chart, on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. One day, when Jesus returns, everyone will have to confirm what God himself has already confirmed. Those in heaven, the heavenly beings, those on earth, those living at that time, and those under the earth. Right? Think back to the first chart, the place of the dead. All will bow their knee. All will confess that Jesus is Lord in Christ. Just like Peter says you should. It's not that Jesus will give everybody a second chance. That's not what he's saying. He says one day you're going to have to confirm yourself. You're going to have to acknowledge your, yourself what God has already put in place. And because of Jesus' victory over death, there's, this, there's wonderful realities for us. One, death is no longer the ultimate power in the world. Benjamin Myers has this great quote, and I'm going to share on the screen because I thought it was just so good. And it sat with me all week. Where others see only defeat, Jesus' followers see a paradoxical victory. 
Where others see only contamination, we see the sanctification of human nature. Where others see only darkness and despair, we see broken gates. Where others see an end, we see new beginnings. And listen to this. Death is serious, but not as serious as life. It has been placed in a wider context of meeting. We bury our dead under the sign of the cross. We lay our bones to rest, not in horror, but in peace. The dominant sound at a Christian funeral is not mourning, but singing praise. Death is no longer the ultimate power in this world. Jesus has taken the keys. It's no longer the ultimate power in the world. It can't sting you. It's gone. It's lost its sting. And death has no power to captivate your thoughts when Christ captivates your heart. If the if fear of death captivates your thoughts, if the wars in Israel and Ukraine have you rattled, if the thought of losing things like our families or our reputations or our possessions or our dreams or leaving them behind when we die, if that freaks us out, listen to me, it may reveal that we love those things more than we love Christ. But if Christ has captivated my heart, his love for me is so overwhelming that I know whatever I have on earth is nothing compared to what I have in him. Well, as much as I have or as little as I have, it's nothing compared to what I have in him. I know death for me is a change of place but not company. I know when I die, I'll be with my friend. I know that when I... Well, when I die, I'll be with my brother. But Christ must captivate our hearts now so we don't feel that change of company. If we're, we spend, if we, we're in the company of Christ now, it would just be seamless transition when we die, except we'll be with him in person, which is going to be awesome. But we must grow in our love for him now so that the fear of death will darken and the joy and hope of paradise in his presence will be increasingly brighter day by day. I'm always struck by people, they're like the older saints in my life who have approached death, who just like, it's like paradise, Jesus gets brighter and brighter and brighter and brighter. When I think it should be darker and darker and darker and scarier and scarier and scarier, it gets brighter for them. It gets more exciting. I had my, my grandma, when she was dying, she was dying of pancreatic cancer, and she kept outliving. Like, the doctor was like, you have six months to live. And she's like, she, she's like, I lived by, at two years at that point. And I remember her talking to her on the phone, and I said, Grandma, I'm like, how can I, how, what can I do for you? She said, please stop praying for me to be healed. <laughs> and I was like, what? She's like, I just want to see Jesus. It got brighter for her. And I was like, Grandma, I hope I'm that way when I'm dying. And if you don't want me to pray for you to, not be, to be healed, I love you enough not to do that. But I got to let you know, selfishly, I really want you to stick around. Look, you have to acknowledge death for what it is. It's serious. Like what's happening in Israel and Ukraine and what, when you get sick or people get cancer and they're dying or, they, you know, like all that is real. It's serious, but it's not as serious as life. So acknowledge it. Don't dismiss it. Don't act like it doesn't exist. Ignore it. 
But don't overdo your intake of it either. We're just not meant to see these many images of, and of death. See it, acknowledge its seriousness, ask God in prayer to fix it and show you how you can help and go about your day. Because this thing is gone. And you need to grow in your love for Christ. It includes coming to church, absolutely. But you need to read your Bible, you need to pray more than you are now. Sometimes after I read scripture, I just take a deep breath and I sit quietly and I just let what I've read just wash over me. And I repeat it a couple verses over and over again. Like his steadfast love endures forever. Like if you just repeated that over and over again, just let it wash over you. That love for Christ will captivate your heart. It will help Scripture move from your mind and down into your heart as you meditate on it. And so when you die or your death approaches you, it's like, you know what? I've already got great company. I already got a great friend. I got a great brother. So when I die, I take my last breath. It's cool. Yeah, it's going to stink on many, on many levels. But I'll be with him, the person I love. And lastly, we need to share Christ's victory over death to the world. It's not enough for us to just, like, hear it for ourselves. We're supposed to share it. Talk with people about it. Look, maybe the dissent stuff isn't convincing to you. That's, that's fine. But hopefully Jesus' resurrection and his life is. And you want to share that. That you realize, like, this is so important. This is so good that Jesus died for me, and he rose from the dead, and he ascends and sits at the Father. Like, this is so good. I, I got to share it. Like, I share more about apps than I do Jesus. I'm like, yo, check out this app I got. I downloaded this app called One Sec because I kept, like, doom scrolling Instagram. All right, so I downloaded this app that, like, every time I go open Instagram now, it, it says, like, take a deep breath, and you got to wait, a, like, a couple seconds before it lets you into Instagram. And it says, like, do you still want to go into Instagram? It's like Netflix. Like, are you still watching this? Right? I, tell more, I told more people about that this week than I told about Jesus. So do things like pick up a card at the info table, an invite card, and just invite somebody. Give it to your waiter or waitress. Say, hey, like, hey, we're going to, in a minute, we're going to sit down, we're going to eat, and uh, we just, you know, like, we're people who go to this church, Liberty Northeast. We love you. Is there a way we can pray for you? And we would like to invite you to church. I never asked, asked somebody if I could pray for them, and they tell me no. They might say, not right now. i got to go back to work. But, like, all right, I'll pray for you offline, you know. Volunteer trunk or treat. It's a simple way to show your love and life to the neighborhood. There's kids who are coming who, like, don't know the love of Jesus. They've never experienced love from an adult that doesn't want something back from them. Encourage others in your home meeting who are afraid of what's happening in the world right now. Acknowledge it. Say, yeah, this is really scary. But encourage them that death isn't as serious as life. Life wins out because of Jesus. And pray with them and encourage them with Jesus' victory over death. So Jesus is victorious over death. Amen? Hey, why don't we stand? We'll just say the Apostles' Creed as we've been doing. And let's remind ourselves of that. Like when we're saying that, well, that's what we're saying. Say, look, he, you know, he descended to dead. He rose again. And he ascended, like, Jesus is victorious over death. That's what we're reminding ourselves of. So why don't we say the Apostles' Creed together. So Christians, what do you believe? 
I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Father, thank you to Jesus victorious over death, that we do not need to fear it, that the sting of death is gone. And if you're here today and you never put your faith in Jesus, you never trusted him and death, you know, maybe death is really scary to you because you don't believe in what he's done for you. I just want you to take a moment, silently just say, Jesus, I believe. I believe you're victorious over death. Forgive my sin. Forgive my unbelief and help me believe. And for the rest of us, Father, the world is a scary place at times, and uh, this is all part of your plan in, in ways we don't understand or know, but we're thankful that ultimately you in Jesus are victorious, that Jesus is victorious over death, that death can't hurt us, it's not the ultimate power in the world anymore, and we thank you, Jesus, that when we die, we will be in your presence in paradise, just like you promised the thief on the cross. We pray all this in your precious and holy name. You who live, reign with Father and the Holy Spirit. Amen.